What happened when people encountered Jesus? One thing is for sure, no one stayed the same. Skeptics, outcasts, politicians, and religious leaders alike all had strong reactions to him. Some walked away, but some believed. And in those lives, we see the hand of God filling in who they were meant to be. We see the rough outline of their lives given color and shape and form and made into something altogether unique and new and beautiful. No one who ever encountered Jesus was ever the same. For each one, it all started the same way. Meeting him face to face. Well, good morning, church. Great to be back with you. I was out of town in New Mexico last week and made me even more grateful for who you are and who we are together. It's a privilege and honor to be here with you today. Again, women, we'd love to have you at that women's retreat that's coming up. Please don't let finances be an, uh, an, uh, an obstruction to you. Men, please encourage your wives to go. If you were at the men's retreat, we talked about you know stewarding your family. Well, this is your opportunity to say, yes, give me those babies. I will hold, nurse them if I have to, to get you to be able to go. So as impossible as that sounds, we'll just, anyway, all right. You get the spirit of what I'm saying. Here we go, all right. We are in a series called Face to Face, and we're looking at encounters Jesus has with various people in the gospel, and this morning our encounter is from Matthew chapter 3 and 4. You can follow along on the screen or in your Bible. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. Well, this morning we come to perhaps the strangest encounter Jesus has with any one of the Gospels. Here he comes face to face with the devil. And this is why we're looking at it this morning, because this encounter, perhaps more than any other place we see in Scripture, gives us a blueprint for how to face and overcome Satan, sin, and evil in the world. In other words, this passage shows us how to win in something called spiritual warfare. 
spiritual warfare. Now, if that phrase makes you a bit uncomfortable this morning, that's understandable, maybe even good. But listen, hang in there, hang in there for a moment, and you'll see just how practical this passage and that concept is. I want to look at three broad elements this passage presents us with this morning. First, we're going to look at Satan's power. Yeah. Second, the Christian's fight. And finally, Christ's remedy. So let's begin here. Number one, you ready? Satan's power. All right, I use the word Satan. Yeah, the devil, the devil. Now, before I even get into the passage, because we, we live in 21st century Western culture in Austin, Texas, in particular, we've got to do a little bit of back work, a little bit of groundwork behind the scenes, even with the idea of there being a devil. You know, the devil or, or Satan, it proves to be uh, just sort of this, either on one hand, this inexplicably and you know, overly interesting subject to certain kinds of religious people. You know who I'm talking about. Maybe this is you. All right. Or it's laughably dismissible and mocked, on the other hand, by secular people. And for those of you who grew up watching Dana Carvey on Saturday Night Live do his church lady skit, you know what I'm talking about. All right. But to the... No, I'm not going to do it. But to the majority of the world, the idea of Satan, demons, the dark supernatural realm, spiritual warfare, actually helped them make sense of the world. If you go to Latin America, you go to Asia, you go to Africa, the idea of a dark supernatural realm, it's commonplace and understood to be true. So, at least in the interests of understanding what the majority of the world believes and not looking down our collective nose at them, not being culturally narrow, we ought to consider what the Bible has said all along, that there is a supernatural being called the devil and that our real wrestling and fighting in life isn't just against our own sin, isn't just against other people, but it's against dark, supernatural powers. Again, this idea, of course you know this, is broadly scoffed at in our culture today. Andrew Del Banco, who is a humanities professor at Columbia University, he wrote a book a few years ago called The Death of Satan, How Americans Have Lost the Sense of Evil. And he opens the book with this statement as his very first words. He says this, he said, A gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources available for coping with it. In other words, when our culture today, when we ask the question, what's wrong with the world? Hmm? Why do things go wrong? Why is there evil? Our culture says, well, everything has a natural cause. Everything has a natural cause. It's, you know, bad genetics. It's bad psychology. It's a lack of education. Maybe it's regressive religious approaches. Everything bad in the world, our culture says, has a natural cause, and therefore we can eliminate it through information. We can eliminate it through education alone or through perhaps restructuring social systems. But as DeBanco goes on to point out, and again, DeBanco, he self-labels, he calls himself, he tells us he's a secular, liberal person. He's not a Christian. He says, listen, that approach to say that everything in the world has a natural cause, he says, that's naive. He says, look at Nazi Germany, right? One of the most ruthless killing cultures that's ever existed. He said, who are these people, huh? Do they have a lack of education? No, they were some of the most wealthy, most educated, most cultured people in the world in their day. They had science, right? They had philosophy. They had a national identity, culture, wealth, art. And what do they do with all of it? They weaponized it. They weaponized all of it. And so to suggest that education alone 
wealth alone will eliminate evil. He says, that's naive. He says, listen, if you're thinking that we can just restructure social systems, just redistribute wealth, and that's going to end evil, he says, that's naive as well. He said, look at Marxism, right? Former Soviet Union, the capitalists, brutal, selfish regime. They're wicked. So Marxism says, hey, let's overturn the system altogether. We need to radically up in the system now and give power to people who have been fundamentally and perennially disenfranchised, the proletariat. And what did they do with it? Hmm? They were as or more wicked than the capitalists were. And so DeBanco says, listen, if you think evil, all evil has a natural cause, you don't get it. And he summarizes his thought with a scene from a movie, which itself is a case study of evil, Silence of the Lambs. I'm going to give you a quote. I know it's hard not just to hear Anthony Hopkins here, but do me a favor and try. And he quotes... Dr. Hannibal Lecter, who's the cannibalistic serial killer. And there's this interchange where he's talking to police officer Starling, and he's describing, Hannibal Lecter is, the horrific things he's done. And she looks at him and says, what happened to you, you know, that you could do this? How did you get to be so bad? Who did something to you to make you evil? And this is what he said. He said, nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism, Officer Starling. You've got everybody in moral dignity pants. Nothing is ever anybody's fault. Look at me, Officer Starling. Can you stand to say I'm evil? And Delbanco says this. He says, our culture, our generation today has no answer to the monster's question. In other words, he's saying the reason we fail to defeat evil in our culture today is because we don't really believe it exists in the first place. How can you defeat something that doesn't really exist? Our culture can't answer the monster's question, but Christianity can and has. It says this, there is an actual devil in the world, and therefore evil in the world cannot just be reduced to human choices. Humans do have a capacity for evil inside them, no question, but this cannot account for all the evil. There is a devil, the Bible says, who magnifies, complicates, and amplifies the evil human beings do. And by the way, this is not illogical to believe in. If you already believe in a good supernatural being called God, right, it's not illogical at all to believe there also simultaneously exist dark supernatural beings. It's actually more illogical to believe those don't exist. So let's ask now, with all this in mind, how does Satan work first and foremost in the world? Hmm? What kind of power does he have? Well, it's this. It's the power of deception. Power of deception. But in a specific sense, hear me out. What do I mean? I mean, people today are deceived about or they misunderstand who and what the devil is in the first place, who Satan is. According to the Bible, Satan is a powerful but finite and singular angel who became proud, rebellious, led a failed coup and uprising in heaven. He was banished and now lives to frustrate and harm God's plans and people. So how should we understand him then, in a sense? I'll put it like this. We should never overestimate him or underestimate him. Never overestimate him, never underestimate him. C.S. Lewis has always puts it best in his book, The Screwtape Letters. He said this. He said there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Now, what does this mean? 
Well, he's saying the devils love a magician. This is Lewis's word for a Christian who ascribes everything to the devil and who, you know, can make the devil appear on command. You know, kind of pull them out of, like a rabbit out of a hat on cue, you know. Are you sick? Poof, it's the devil always, right? Uh, did your car have a flat tire? The devil, right? Spiritual warfare. That's like the dumbest thing. I mean, spiritual warfare, if you're, my flat tire, my car gets a flat tire, it's the only thing I can fix. You know, if the devil were really smart, he'd touch my engine or fuel pump or U-bar or whatever else kind of goes on there. I don't know. You know, can't find a parking spot at church or did the pastor, you know, have the audacity to ask you to park only between two lines, not in limbo somewhere. Poof, it's the devil, right? Devil. Did the batteries go out on your remote in the middle of the game? Poof, it's the devil, right? It's warfare. Now, why would, why would the, why would the devil love this magician's approach? Here's why. Because it's overly simplistic overly simplistic. It doesn't take into account the true causes of a person's suffering or issues, leaving a person ultimately unhealed and not whole. Maybe the reason, maybe the reason you're angry today isn't because the devil's making you angry. Maybe it's because you need to forgive your friend. Hmm? Forgive your father. Forgive that boss, coworker, leader. Maybe your anger doesn't have a demonic root, but a moral root. See? Maybe the reason you're feeling guilty is not because the devil's making you feel guilty, but because you need to repent of sin you've done. Maybe you need to restore to someone else what you've taken from them, see? Maybe the reason you're depressed is because at 21, perhaps, you entered the military and saw unspeakable horrors and things for which you're not equipped to handle and deal with, and now you're depressed. See, depression can have a variety of causes. Most Christians, or many Christians today, say, depression, ah, it's the devil, right? It's the devil. It can be but not always, right? How about Elijah? Elijah, after this triumph of Mount Carmel, he goes out into the desert, and he's suicidal at this point. He says, God, I can't take it. He says, I've had enough. Take my life. Take my life. And by the way, Elijah never presupposes that he has the power to take his own life. That being said, he does ask God to kill him, to take his life. He's depressed. So what does God do? It's the angel of the Lord here, huh? Does God rebuke him? Does he tell him, man, you know, you're afflicted by a devil of depression? Does he cast the devil out of him? No. What does the angel of the Lord do? He touches him, right? He ministers to him. He cooks for him. He talks to him. He tells him, take a nap. Rest, right? He gives him food, rest, friendship, conversation, touch, and speaks to him, yes, later. But the point is that God's addressing the whole person whole person, not just his spiritual nature. See, magicians are superstitious Christians. Everything's the devil's fault, and therefore they they overestimate his power. But materialists, those who say there's no such thing as the devil, they are substitious, to use Lewis's phrase. They underestimate the devil, and therefore, hear this, have no remedy for what ails the world today. Here's the point. Both those who overestimate and underestimate the devil, reduce the nature of true evil. And therefore, people in both situations, both scenarios, can never be healed, never be made whole. If you don't believe in the devil today, listen, it's not Christians who are being naive and simple. See, it's you. You can't even answer Hannibal Lecter's question. 
But on the other hand, if everything's the devil, you forget the devil is only a singular fallen angel leading other fallen angels, and God is infinitely more power than all of them. And his followers will ultimately triumph over them one day and has empowered you and I, us, to defeat them right now. Right then, right now. So that's Satan's main power this morning. It's the power of deception, right? We can either over or underestimate him. But with that in mind, now let's finally, you're wondering when this was going to happen, let's finally get into the passage here and see where and how in the Bible that Satan brings the fight to us. Hmm? How does he fight humanity? Let's look at this, number two, the Christians fight. And we'll pick up our passage here in chapter 3, verse 16. It says, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So, chapter 3, what happens, right? Jesus is water baptized. God the Father's voice speaks. Hmm? The Holy Spirit, the Trinity, is present at Jesus' baptism. God the Father speaks the ultimate word of affirmation to him. And then what happens? Hmm? What happens next? Well, the gospel writer Matthew tells us, he uses one word. He says, then. Then Jesus was led into the desert to be tempted. This word is crucial here. This is almost, this word then, is almost the same as therefore. Or because he was affirmed, now he's being tested. See, because he's loved, now he's being tempted. Oh, and this shows, up, shows us right up front a truth about spiritual warfare. And that's this. It's just inevitable. <laughs> It's just inevitable in our lives. No matter how hard you try today, no matter clean you live, man, you say, Morgan, I'm slick as a whistle. I do this, I do that. Let me tell you, no matter how talented, smart, sharp, generous you are, no one escapes temptation and testing on planet Earth. Some of you may resist that. Let me, all right, let's ask. What if, huh? What if you lived a sinless life? Some of you husbands, probably your hand, for men, your hand goes up. Just get married, right? You find it in a hurry. That's not the truth about you what if what if you were so good other people defined good by you what if you could overcome all your flaws all your faults live a perfect life before god you never doubted his word what if you heard hmm, the audible voice of god speaking to you what would happen this would happen you'd be tested you'd be tempted because there was one who lived a perfect life, who lived a flawless life, who heard the voice of God, and yet he was tempted. And this scene here is just the start of Jesus' troubles. And right away we know this. It's always dangerous, always dangerous to judge God's love for us based upon our circumstances. Always dangerous to judge our, God's love for us based upon our circumstances. Most Christians say, I'm going through a trial. It must mean God doesn't love me. It must mean God doesn't see me. I don't mean to mock. The Bible says here that God spoke a word of audible love to his only son and then led him, led him to a place of difficulty, trial, testing, temptation. See, don't base God's love for you on your circumstances. It's like the weather always changing. See, everyone, everywhere, no matter how good, will be subject to the effects of evil in a fallen world, and Jesus is the ultimate example of that. So, let's ask now, when Satan attacks, how and where does he attack people? Where is the battle? Hmm? 
Where is the fight? You say, by the way, there is a fight. There's a fight. There's a fight going on right now for who you are. Some of you had a fight just getting here this morning, right? You're thinking, man, ACL, Texas OU weekend, the weather, Columbus Day. It's a fight, right? This goes on and on. It's like the gauntlet for pastors. All right. It's a fight. It just is. J.C. Ryle, he was an Anglican bishop in the 19th century, and he said this. He said, true Christianity is a fight. There is a vast quantity of religion current in the world which is not true, genuine Christianity. It passes muster. It satisfies sleepy consciences. But it is not good money. There are thousands of men and women who go to churches every Sunday, but you never see any fight about their religion of spiritual strife and exertion and conflict and self-denial and watching and warring. They know literally nothing at all. Now, if you're uncomfortable, again, with this metaphor, it's understandable. It may be because of all the bad examples of Christians throughout history who misunderstood, misunderstand this concept, and they go off singing stuff. Maybe you've sung this, you know, onward, Christian soldiers. Marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. Now, that ought to give you the heebies. I sang it as a kid growing up. We don't sing that one here, all right, just to let you know. But this passage, though, it does show us we will be required to resist and fight Satan when he attacks in two primary ways. First is through accusation. Accusation. He said to Jesus, he said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. What does this mean? It means that the first attack, perhaps the main attack on us, we can see through how he attacked Jesus, it was this. In his assurance that he was God's beloved son. See, Satan is suggesting here that Jesus' status, his relationship with God as God's beloved son, is conditional upon what he can do, how he performs. And this is why spiritual warfare can be summed up in this one quote. It's not on the screen, but it's great. He says, it goes like this, Satan doesn't come at us to leave fang marks upon the flesh, but lies upon the soul. Satan doesn't come at us with fang marks upon the flesh, but lies upon the heart. Lies upon the heart. Lies upon the soul. See, most Christians think spiritual warfare is some big cosmic showdown, right? Especially in the charismatic world. We love to imagine it as like an intergalactic cage match with some bodybuilder-looking angels, you know, Schwarzenegger on one side, like Nightmare on Elm Street devils on the other, who collide like transformers. They leave cities and skyscrapers devastated in their wake and citizens crying for mercy underneath. To be honest, many Christians today talk about epic battles like hearing about epic battles, power encounters, but do little to nothing in real life to show up in the smaller and much more important battles that will be the tipping points of their own lives and their own church family. See, what is real spiritual warfare looks like? It looks like this. Satan lying to Jesus in the desert. It looks like Satan lying to Adam and Eve in the garden. When it comes to the planet, what does he do? He lies. He's not a scary ghost with a flaming head. Oh, you shouldn't be scared about that stuff. What you ought to be scared about is this, the voice that lies, a voice that lies. This is the most frequent, most common, and most devastating form of spiritual warfare. Don't you think that Satan, now he's waiting an eternity perhaps to meet Jesus on planet Earth, isn't he going to unleash 
His most devastating tactic, right? I mean, he's not going to come against him with just his lower-grade warfare. I mean, it's going to be his demonic, nuclear-powered arsenal. The best weapon he's got, it's this right here. What is it? Not fang marks upon the flesh. Lies upon the heart. See, did God really say, Satan asked Adam and Eve. And that's what he's asking Jesus here as well. Jesus, you know, I heard, I heard the Father say something to you at your baptism, right? The voice, hmm, did, did he really mean that you're loved, your beloved? I don't think so. Jesus, look at you now. You're starving in the desert. Starving in the desert. Look at your circumstance. See, it's the same thing here in the desert as it was in the garden. Does God really love you? Hmm? Are you really accepted and loved apart from your performance. Let me ask you, is the engine of your heart today running on this kind of fuel that my God loves me? Oh, I'm his beloved child. In me, he is well pleased. Does your heart run on that today? See, that's the kind of fuel that creates an unstoppable person in the world. But if the engine of your heart runs on some other kind of fuel, and it can run on all kind of fuels, greed, lust, perversion, power, you name it, see, that will leave you just one step short of some kind of spiritual breakdown. Perhaps some of you are already there. A number of years ago, I had a pastor friend who had a, he had a large and successful ministry. He, he would preach the gospel with his lips that God loves you. You're justified by faith in Jesus alone, not your own moral effort. And his ministry began to grow, but as it did, so did the pride. So did the pride and arrogance in his heart. He thought his own success came from his own efforts. And as a result, he began to grow more arrogant in his preaching, more condemning of others, more superior in how he approached church members. And many of them left, which caused a chain reaction in his church. He was so devastated, he began to drink heavily as a result, had an affair with another church member, and his marriage and his ministry fell apart. He was fired and disgraced. What happened, hmm? What's the autopsy say? It's this. He lost the fight against the accuser. Against the accuser. The adultery, that was just like the final, not even a knockout blow, just a tip over with the finger. Against a defenseless person, the real warfare was underneath. You're not beloved for who you are. You're not God's beloved son. He's only pleased with you if you're succeeding, if things are going well. See, he, he, he couldn't hear the words, oh, child, you belong to me, not to those people. Listen, there are many kinds of fuels that can power your heart, but only one won't unravel it. God's excuse me, unconditional acceptance of you in Jesus. Satan accuses God to you. That's his first w- bit of warfare. Second, though, he doesn't just accuse. We can see, though, he also tempts here. His accusation and, secondly, temptation. And as the story goes on, we see another kind of warfare. It says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All of this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. All right? So let's ask, how does temptation work? How does temptation work? It's a great example. It's from an old vineyard pastor named Dr. John Wyden. He said this. He said, uh, take an old piano. Go to an old piano. This is actually a keyboard inside an old piano. Go to an old piano. Open up the lid and sing into it. Sing into it. You know what will happen? Well, if anybody's around, they'll probably laugh at you. All right, so you want to do this when nobody's around can't hear you sing but if you sing in an old piano the very same note that you sing will begin to vibrate inside the piano you won't have touched it you won't have created it you won't even be playing it 
but the note will begin to sing, see? How? Through your voice. Your voice activated what was already there, and that's how the devil works. He sets out to activate or to vibrate, to pull on what's already in you through temptation. In other words, the devil, he doesn't make good people go bad. He makes flawed people worse. The devil can only aggravate a person's spiritual condition. He can never create it. You see, he can only play a string that already exists. Thomas Brooks was an old Puritan minister. He wrote a book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, the title of this message. And in the book, he lists dozens and dozens of the ways that Satan tempts us. I'm going to use just a few here for the sake of time. Six ways in particular. And let's ask, how does, in specific, how can, anyway, how can Satan tempt us? First is this, as he shows you the bait and hides the hook. In other words, he doesn't show you the pain of the future, right? Only the pleasure of the moment. It doesn't show you the decades of misery and pain and poverty sin will bring you to. He just shows you how good and nice it is right now. Secondly, he paints sin with virtue's colors. Here's how this goes. You say, you know what? I'm not a gossiper. I just care about my church. <laughs> I'm not greedy. I'm just a good steward. All right? I'm not bitter. I just like to keep my guard up right? See, he makes sin look like virtue, right? It's not lust. I'm just appreciating God's creation. Some of you heard that one. All right. It's true. Heard that one. Third, he shows you the sins of other Christian leaders, right? Look how bad they are. I mean, that guy took a lot of money, right? That guy did that to his secretary. I mean, how can God expect me to obey him when his leaders don't even do it? Right. Number four, he overstresses the mercy of God. It goes like this. God will forgive you no matter what you do, right? Man, don't pay no attention. Don't read the Bible where it shows how God judges and acts against those who abuse his mercy. Don't look at that. Just look at his forgiveness. Okay. Number five, he makes you bitter over suffering. You think, look how hard I have it. Hmm? Man, I work so hard. I've been through so much. I deserve Fill in the blank, see. Number six, he shows you, he shows Christians, shows us how many bad people have great lives, right? It's your boss at work. It's this person who's wealthy. They don't serve God. They're immoral. They cheat. They lie. But look how good they have it and how bad I have it. You know, playing by the rules doesn't work. Hmm? I should just do it my own way. God doesn't care. Any of this sound familiar? <laughs> see, no temptation has seized you except what's common to man. Now, some of these didn't, don't speak to you, but some of them did. And if none of these here did, then another one would. Why? Because that string, that string is in your heart. And the devil sings to it. He inflames it. He incites your heart against God. And this is why, church, anything and everything can be a form of spiritual warfare. What you watch on TV, what you listen to, what you eat, the people next to you. Satan can use anything that's in your heart already to incite you against God. Listen, you may think, you see people fall into destruction, right? They turn their hearts away from God, and you think, it was for that? It was for that, really? Oh, but you have an equal but different string in your heart that if we don't watch, if we're not careful, the devil can sing to you as well, and that's why you get offended at some things other people don't. Somebody walks past you in church, doesn't say hi to you, 95% of the world, doesn't matter, but to you, oh, that thing's in you. He's singing into your heart. 
vibrating that string. He aggravates the hurt. He inflames the insecurity. He pokes the pain. It's already there. See, He didn't create it, but he magnifies it. And that's where the fight is, church. Accusation and temptation. So, how do we win? We kind of went to the dark side a bit there. All right. How do we win? How do we overcome hmm? temptation and accusation? Because, hear this, we can and we must. We can and we must. Let's find out. Number three, Christ's remedy. Christ's remedy. I love this here. Let's ask, how does Jesus, oh, how does he deal with the devil? Hmm? How does Jesus engage in spiritual warfare? Because after all, again, here they are on earth for the first time. Clash of the Titans, right? The rematch. (laughs) Something happened years ago in eternity. Now they're here on earth. The face off in the desert. Does Jesus just blast him with his glory gun? You know, takes it out. Does he say, stand back and watch? No, why not? Jesus leaks out his glory, doesn't he, at other moments. The Mount of Transfiguration. He reveals himself as the most beautiful and powerful being the world's ever seen. He's stunning in his glory, but not here. Why not? Hmm? Why doesn't he just, you know, cast the devil out? He could have. Actually, he could have just destroyed the devil right there, right? He could have just annihilated Satan himself, a single fallen angel. But he doesn't. He doesn't. Think about it. Why not? A clue to this, the answer to this question, is in what the Father said to Jesus at his baptism. Do you remember what he said? Remember what Jesus heard? He heard this. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, this isn't just a random statement. This is actually a combination of two specific verses from the Old Testament. When he says, God said, this is my beloved son. This is from Psalm 2. It's a song about God's messianic king who comes back to deliver the world from sin and evil. But God goes on to say, with him I am well pleased. It's from Isaiah 53 which describes the mysterious figure of the suffering servant who would suffer and die in the place of his people. And now, can you see, when you put these two together, you have something altogether unique. A king who will save his people and rid the world of evil by bearing evil and dying in his people's place. See, he's an altogether different kind of king. The kind of king who comes not to sit on a throne, church, but to bear a cross. See, if Jesus just destroys the devil right here, evil in the world wouldn't just vanish. You still have the evil in you and me to contend with. See, it's in the human heart as well. And therefore, to get rid of all evil, he would have had to destroy not just the devil, but us as well. Or, or, he would have to become what Isaiah 53 said he would become, the one who himself would be destroyed. In other words, Matthew 3 and 4 are showing us that Jesus is not just coming as a teacher, as just as an, as an example, but as a savior for us as well. He gives us the answer to all of our questions. Enter the question, why didn't Jesus just overwhelm the devil with his power here? It's this, because he's here, not just as an example, but as a substitute, as a substitute for us. See, what Adam and Eve couldn't do in the garden Jesus is doing here for us in the desert. He isn't just fighting for us. No, he's fighting as us in this moment. He is living the life we should have lived but didn't. He is resisting the enemy's accusations perfectly, overcoming Satan's temptations perfectly. He's loving the Lord with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. What no one else could have done or did do, 
He did. Not just for us, but as us. And what did he get, huh? What did he get for doing this? Not affirmation. Crucifixion. Betrayal. Abandonment by his father. He on the cross. He lost this voice. He lost the affirmation. He lost the only thing the human heart needs to run on. And what Jesus had at his baptism, the loving voice of a heavenly father. No, on the cross, heaven was silent as Jesus died. Why? Oh, so that now we church as God's beloved children could receive the same voice. See, Romans 8 says that if you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit of God inside you. And what does God's Spirit long to say to you? What does it cry out? Abba. Daddy, it literally means dada. Oh, dada loves me. My daddy loves me. In him, see, with me, I am. he is well pleased. And Jesus, can you see? He lost his father's voice. So we could have it now. Now we can defeat every voice, every lie that says we're not loved and defeat every power that comes against us to tempt us. And finally, though, that's not all this shows us here. A final question. How did Jesus win here, huh? In this moment, how did he overcome a devil? Well, if you'll notice, of course, it's with one thing. Every time he's assaulted, every time he's attacked, he's got one play in his playbook. He quotes the Bible. He quotes the Bible. Every time that Satan comes against him, he brings out the word of God. And it's not just here. It was all through his life as a child in the temple when he debates the Pharisees over and over again. When he's teaching his disciples, he quotes the Bible. When he's on his way to the cross, he quotes Hosea. When he's on the cross, it's Psalm 22 twice. If you cut him, he bleeds scripture. Almost 10% of the things Jesus ever said or taught are direct quotes or references to the Hebrew Bible. And listen, if Jesus Christ, the Son of God, did not even think or attempt to take on Satan without a deep understanding and commitment to, a pre-commitment to the Word of God, how do you think we're going to be able to overcome our adversary, our enemy, when he comes against us, if we don't do the same? You say, oh, that's hard. That takes time. I have to get up in the morning, you know, read the Bible, take notes, buy books, go to classes, listen to podcasts. That's right. Let me tell you, I feel like just for me, not because I'm anybody special, but as a human being alive on planet Earth who cares and bears the weight of people and souls, man, there's warfare in my life all the time. Man, television entertainment is the minimal in my life. Man, it's nonstop. Man, worship, it's like spiritual steroids. Bible, prayer, worship, podcasts, books, over and over and over. See, listen, you say, man, am I going to have to fight? Only if you want to (laughs) win. Only if you want to win. See, do I have to fight? Only if you're tired of being crushed. Only if you're sick and tired of being attacked. Only if you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, turn off your television and read your Bible. And... And if Jesus overcame the devil with the world, with the word, what makes you think it won't work for you as well? Church, it will. It will. Not just once. You see, the devil came back to him again. Not just once. Some of you do it once and you give up. No. Keep going. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. Oh, church, his word and his voice are precious remedies against Satan's devices. Use them. Use them. They're yours 
in the gospel. Let's pray as we close. Father, we come, in Jesus' name, this morning, thanking you for the weapons of our warfare. They're not, they're not carnal. They're not of the flesh. Lord, they're your word. They're your voice. It's a supernatural power we'll need to overcome a supernatural attack. And Lord, I'm praying for us this morning that we now, maybe we've had it before, but that we would hear again your voice. Oh, my child, my child, my beloved child, in you, I'm well pleased. I'm well pleased. If that's you this morning, if you've been struggling with the sense of God's affirmation in your life, that voice in your heart, in your soul, would you raise your hand this morning? I want to pray for you. Oh, yeah, it's so common. We all go through times where this is a struggle for us. Lord, I'm praying for these now. Lord, as your spirit ministers to us in a moment, they would receive that from you. Your voice and their spirit again, reminding them who they are. If you're here this morning and you're struggling with temptation in an area, maybe one of these things that you heard mentioned here and you're wrestling with it and considering giving in, would you raise your hand this morning? I want to pray for you. Yeah. Listen, if Jesus was tempted, how much more will we be tempted? Thank you for your power, Lord, for these now. Your Holy Spirit on the inside to break the power of these lies. In Jesus' name.